0: Welcome to the Aratay Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Mark Brook, Chief Executive Officer of Asthma Australia. (laughs) Well, it's great to have you along again today, and I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Mark Brook, particularly if you work in the not-for-profit sector, or alternatively, you have aspirations to move your career into the not-for-profit sector. Mark grew up as the son of a GP and has always had a strong orientation towards social welfare, and his entire career has been within this space. But before I get on and formally introduce Mark to you, let me briefly introduce myself. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive, and we recruit CEOs senior leaders, and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. We also provide a range of career coaching and advocacy solutions for senior executives and non-executive directors who are actively looking for a new role. So if you're looking to recruit executives into your own organisation, or you're looking to achieve your own job of choice with employer of choice as quickly as possible, I'd welcome the opportunity to have a chat to you. Let me get on now and introduce to you, Mark Brook. Mark Brook grew up in Brisbane, Australia, and after spending some time after leaving high school, traveling internationally, he returned to Brisbane and completed a Bachelor of Business whilst working for the Police Citizens Youth Clubs Queensland, also known as the PCYC. Mark developed a passion for working within the social welfare sector, and he's spent his entire career there, culminating in his current role as Chief Executive Officer of Asthma Australia. He lives in Brisbane with his family and is a fellow of the Australian Institute of Management and a member of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Sit back now and enjoy this conversation with Mark Brook. All right, so Mark, welcome to the Arate podcast. It's fantastic to have you along today. And I think just for the benefit of the people listening in, perhaps to introduce yourself, just have a chat about your current professional
1: responsibilities. Well, thanks, Richard, and thanks for having me. Uh, At the moment, I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Asthma Australia, which is a national health charity that coordinates all of the uh, functions of asthma foundations throughout the country. Okay. Uh, A large uh, peak body Mm -hmm. that uh, has uh, offices in every state and territory Mm -hmm. and provides services to a broad range of Australians across all walks of life and backgrounds.
0: So what's the relationship between Asthma Australia and then the individual state bodies?
1: So at the moment we're a federated structure and we're in the process of merging, uh, in the process of quite a historic merger of all of the federated uh, entities as well as the two peak bodies. There's a peak body for health professionals that Mm -hmm. work with people with asthma and there's our own peak body as the consumer peak body. So in fact, 10 disparate groups with 50 years history Mm -hmm. have uh, formed a new alliance and will develop one company over the next 12 months.
0: Wow. And so what uh, led to that decision?
1: Well, I think, I think it's a little bit about measuring impact and mm-hmm. understanding that um, together we can improve not only our bottom line and the way in which we operate efficiently, mm-hmm. but there's an acknowledgement that the world has moved on beyond what we were in 1950 when most foundations started. It mm-hmm. was a globalised online community. People don't go to workshops at their local town hall to learn about asthma anymore. They hop on a keyboard at home. Mm-hmm. So all of those things started to make the organisations think about what I call a $2 test. Could we stand in front of uh, a person that was giving us a $2 donation and hand on heart actually say that their donation was being used to best effect? So right. that with the notion of, do we actually um, have an, in- an impact? You know, we feel good about the services we do, but are mm-hmm. they actually making a difference? Mm-hmm is some of the maturity of thinking that the boards right across the country uh, have adopted.
0: Mm -hmm. And has it been hard to uh, get everybody into alignment? Uh, I imagine that different people, different agendas and and different sort of historical contexts, uh, trying to unite all those into a common vision is uh, often not uh, that easy.
1: Yeah, it is a test of your negotiation skills right? and I think Anyone who's worked in the not-for-profit sector and anyone Mm. who's worked in a federated structure Mm -hmm. would know that there's a whole lot of uh, internal and external influences that need to be um, carefully managed. Mm -hmm. People have been putting their heart and soul into their local asthma foundation. In some cases, people have been on boards for 25 years Mm. and they have a real possessiveness about how that happens. So change will become quite difficult for individuals. In other cases, it will be purely regulatory and legislative mm-hmm. issues. You know, how do we gain bequests and uh, stamp duty in one jurisdiction if we're a national company? So working through all of those issues, mm-hmm. um, perhaps the greatest challenge has just been some of the cultural alignment. i sure. You know, just thinking about uh, everyone talks about having common values, but when you really drill down into what those values mean for individuals mm-hmm. and individual settings... Mm-hmm. We weren't actually all that aligned across the com- uh, across their organisations, despite having you know a relatively common vision and purpose. Mm. People saw that vision and purpose through a different lens, depending on where they lived. Mm-hmm.
0: So, what would be an example of uh, where everybody culturally, I'm sure, wants to do the very best that they can for their constituents, yeah. but where there was. Um, you know, a, a cultural uh, blockage that needed to be overcome to progress the conversation.
1: Well, I think it's interesting. If you think about asthma foundations as sort of being the cornerstone of asthma research in mm-hmm. this country for 50 years, and we've been providing uh, you know, over, it's over $100 million now. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are recognised globally for our contribution to the way in which research in this country has been funded and then gone on to make a, an impact on asthma management and treatment globally. But you know, something that we have always said that we were very, very uh, wedded to is now being questioned mm. because there's a new money in the market, there's new innovation grants, there's sure. NH&MRC money. And you know, is the $5 million that we're contributing to asthma research compared to a pharmaceuticals budget of 50 or or $100 million, mm. um, is that a drop in the ocean? Mm-hmm. So um, there, is a, there is a sort of cultural imbalance, if you like, between those who are I'm keen to maintain a research focus and Mm -hmm. those who are keen to look at more of a service delivery focus. Right. And the conversation that uh, I've been facilitating is about actually talking Mm. through that, those don't have to be in conflict with each other. Mm -hmm. If we are to talk about being an impactful organisation, then our research, development, and evaluation processes are going to be critical to that. So, Mm -hmm. um, and again, that comes down to where they started in the organisation and who they are. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a board's that are predominantly medical mm-hmm. providers. I have boards that are representative and I have some boards that are highly skills based with captains of industries mm-hmm. on them. So depending upon where they sit, they will bring a different perspective. And um, I jokingly say to people that I don't actually report to a nine a board of nine at the national office. I report to um, nine boards of 160 people. Right, um, And every one of those 160 people have mm-hmm. some form of nuance to the way in which they want the business to operate into the future mm-hmm. yeah. so
0: it'd be fair to say that a uh, stakeholder management is a big part of your job
1: <laughs> yeah i spend a, i spend a lot of times uh, communicating decisions very softly right uh, but also getting people to understand why we're doing things sure. and um, again anyone who understands a federated structure will know that there is always some Conflict between national and state, and Mm -hmm. there was always some conflict between local and state or state to state. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the secret to our success in trying to get to a merger has been about the commonality of vision and unpacking Mm -hmm. that and making sure that the guiding principles that we have all agreed to, which have now been contemporised, are applied in all of our decision making Mm -hmm. at all boards. Mm -hmm. And and again, holding the mirror up to yourself and having a good hard look at why you're making this decision. Are you just trying to protect mm-hmm. uh, a, a current policy or a current mm-hmm. uh, staff member, or are you actually about trying to make a difference for people with asthma? Mm-hmm. Because but the funny and unusual thing about this, Richard, has been that when I talk to people with asthma on the street, they really don't care. No, for they, sure. They don't really yeah. uh, you know, care one way or another, whether mm-hmm. it's a national or a state. They want connectivity, mm-hmm. Um, but as I said, with a globalised online community and a new digital strategy, we're talking to more people mm. now through our digital strategy than we were talking through our face-to-face strategy with equal impact.
0: Mm. So. That's fascinating. Well, look, uh, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later in this conversation, but let's uh, start by you know, going back to where it all began uh, oh. and tell us a little bit about you know, your early life, where you were born, mum and dad, and, and how you sure. grew up before starting your career.
1: Um, So despite uh, the accent, it doesn't betray it. I was born in Belfast uh, in the late 60s uh, at the height of a great deal of sectarian violence, which Mm -hmm. most people would know as the Troubles. Sure. Um, Product of a Catholic father and a Protestant mother. Wow. They they won't (laughs) mind me saying that, Um, which wasn't necessarily Mm. uh, a good thing to do in the late 60s. So. Uh, my parents uh, took a very brave decision, and and both of them have large extended families. I guess they wanted to, to have a better life for my sister and I, so mm-hmm. we moved uh, from Belfast to Australia, ended uh-huh. up landing in Redcliffe, okay. um, where my dad uh, worked in a steel, uh, steel factory for a number of years, and then ended up owning a fabrication okay. factory that uh, was next to it, and that was his background. Right, um,
0: and just one sister?
1: Yeah, just the one sister. Older uh, or younger? Younger. Okay. So um, a few years between us. So right. uh, my sister is a, a wonderful parent to a whole brood of families. So she's continued where I've left off uh-huh. and uh, had uh, had lots of families in the true Northern Irish, uh, uh, lots of children in the true right. Northern Irish um, uh, tradition. Yeah. I, I just have the two boys. So. Okay. And when but, you
0: grew up, was mum working?
1: Yeah. So mum, mum uh, was a GP. Okay. Uh, so worked in a home-based uh surgery, which mm-hmm. um, sort of has shaped a lot of the way in which I work. So in you can imagine in the early seventies to mid seventies there were no super GP clinics and mm-hmm. no sort of uh, GP offices in, in shopping centres. Ours, uh, mum's surgery was downstairs, which mm-hmm. meant early memories of, you know, coppers coming and knocking on the door at two A. M. with victims of domestic violence and All asking right. my mum, who was the only female GP at the time on the Redcliffe Peninsula to um, sure. do some of that work okay, so yeah. a lot of that uh, sort of shaped the way mm. in which uh, my early years where I spent some of my first years were working every Saturday morning in uh, in the surgery which sort of has given me an insight into probably a you know a, a phobia around good patient care because right. I think those early years shaped me with you know, lots of sick people coming in yeah um but uh, no.
0: So what did you do on a Saturday morning? Just me and the front desk? Yes, yeah. Right.
1: I, I, was, I was the medical receptionist okay. for, uh, you know, literally all the way through my high school years. So uh-huh. uh, okay. meant greeting um, every pensioner and, and old person that would come into the surgery and want to have a chat. Which, right. Um, you never, you know, as you know, sitting in a waiting room, you pick up a magazine and, Not in those days, people that want to talk to you and want to spend time and understand what was going on.
2: Well,
0: that versus reading a four-year-old new idea, there's not much comparison, (laughs) is there? Yeah, (laughs) that's (laughs)
1: exactly... And no one had smartphones in the Uh, the mid-70s, so you couldn't do anything and read emails.
0: Right. Okay. And so uh, um, I grew up in Redcliffe and then... uh, we were of similar age, so I mm-hmm. finished high school, what, about eighty eighty six? 86, 80, yeah. Yeah, 80 86. Yeah. 85, 86. Uh, what happened then?
1: So I decided I would go travelling for a while, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I wanted to just um, finish high school, get a look at where I was in the world, and yeah. uh, and I guess that goes back to a little bit about trying to track down and understand my own personal heritage. Mm-hmm. and. and Uh, So I spent about 12 months rather than go to university straight away. I mean, my father was a great believer that experience before education, so Mm -hmm. he wanted me to get out. Um, So all those Saturday mornings of of, of earning a few bob to go and do that sort of got me backpacking throughout... uh, Europe and the US um, and
0: were you working as you uh, traveled or you'd say yeah to...
1: yeah all the things that right. your average 17 and 18 year old did you know working in bars and yeah doing stuff like that I got a a job in the UK with a friend of my old man sweeping a floor in a factory for okay. a while so picking fruit so yeah yeah doing anything and everything right so that I could pay to get to the next place I wanted to go to mm-hmm. so um, ended up doing that, and then came back and uh, got a role with PCYC's Queensland, right? Um, as a as a junior program development officer at Beanley PCYC.
0: So PCYC, an iconic brand. Yeah. You know, what was it that originally attracted you to um, you know that organisation?
2: Yeah. Look, I, I,
1: as a kid, I had gone to Redcliffe PCYC and um, was given a leadership award. Mm-hmm. You no, know, just hanging out there and. For me, the, the job popped up and, uh, you know, I, I applied in the old days of actually having to type your, yep. um, your CV and put it in the post and got mm-hmm. a phone call, or my mum got a phone call to say they'd like to interview me. So,
0: Just explain to people who may not be familiar what PCYC is all about.
1: So PCYC is one of the state's largest youth organisations, Police Citizens Youth Clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, in the old days, it used to be known as Police Boys Clubs, mm-hmm. but I think contemporised around the mid-70s, who so it offers a range of sports, recreational, cultural development and uh, young people programs, mm-hmm. young, young person development programs, and I um, was working at Beanley PCYC on some youth leadership programs mm-hmm. uh, and helping young people who were largely at the fringe of the margins of um, mm-hmm. falling into some form of uh, life of crime, mm. uh, working with those kids
0: so as a uh, you know a young basically a teenager yeah. um you know making a decision to go down that pathway professionally versus many other things that you could have done particularly when you consider in many respects you came from a household which is not typical of the mm. people who would go to a pcyc yeah. you know what, what drove that um appetite to do that kind of work
1: uh, I've always been interested in community I've always been interested in what makes community tick I mean I can say that with the value of hindsight now I'm not sure that I understood that at the time mm. but being engaged in communities and um, being part of something mm-hmm. has always been important to me mm-hmm. and I um, throughout my entire career that's actually been something I've, I've um, sure I've invested a lot of time in mm-hmm. the organizations I've worked in and actually, Know, not seen it as a job but seen it as a, as a purpose. Mm. Um, so the, the PCYC movement had this wonderful uh, youth development program at the time which really was about equipping people with good values and, and good skills. And it's a bit, maybe it's a bit blase to say that nowadays, but it, you know, the currency of that even today mm. um, still resonates well with me. And many of the people, um, whether they were police officers or, or other civilians that I met then, I would regard as good friends and mentors mm. now people that had started to shape the way in which I saw the world. Mm-hmm. And subsequent to that I, I, I got a promotion and went to the, the PCYC state office as a as a program development officer and then uh, three years later found myself as the um, as the state programs manager. So mm-hmm. at the same time I was um, going to university part-time and, and, and looking at business and okay. that sort of um, I recognised that I could work in the, in the community space, but you know, managing PCYS, which can be upwards of a million dollars each, and there are mm-hmm. 30 or 40 of them at the times, so it was a 35 million dollar enterprise. Sure. You know, I needed to be able to have the skills that matched the expectations as I wanted to move my career. Mm-hmm. So. And while you were doing
0: your business degree, was there ever a time where you thought that perhaps you wanted to go down a more commercial path? Uh, and and get involved in a more typical business?
1: Yeah, look, it, if I think about our family business, my dad wanted me to go and manage um, right. multiple steel fabrication sites, okay. but it wasn't. Um, I had thought about work going into the commercial sector, and I, and I think one of the nice things about working in the not-for-profit space is that there is very little that separates the two in terms of the skills you require to oh, manage the enterprise out. absolutely um, and i you know so i, I no not going down the you know, not going into a commercial space hasn't really interested me and i mm-hmm. guess that shaped 25 years of mm. not-for-profit career mm-hmm. um, and
0: mum never wanted you to go down the medical path
1: uh no and right. i look, quite frankly uh no i, I think I, I can say this because she's uh she's no longer with us but uh, working every saturday in that medical receptionist role put me off medicine for life I'd say. <laughs> so for me no I wasn't um, yeah I, I wasn't really interested which is a, a bit of a contradiction given where I am now sure working in a medical research and and uh, health charity yeah
0: so. but it's a bit different to treating somebody with the flu for the four thousand yeah, yeah
1: I look I, I have a number of cool. colleagues that um, work in medicine and uh, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in uh, mm. in the opportunities, but mm. no, it was not something that ever sure it ever took uh, ever took money. And so fancy. you're with
0: you're with PCYC for quite a significant period of time, yeah. ending up as a deputy CEO.
1: Yeah, I um, you might recall the Fitzgerald inquiry came along in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, that created some conversations about how PCYC was uh, was managed, mm-hmm. and in the in the PCYC. Um, just to, to give some context, police youth clubs are actually a partnership between the community company and the police service, Right. insofar as the majority of the labour costs are funded police officers' salaries. Right. Um, the Woodrow Commission in New South Wales uh, made some scathing recommendations about PCYC's about the loss of purpose. So, you know, okay. was it a police officer's role to run a boxing gym? Was right. it a police officer's role to run a gymnastics hall? Sure. And when the Woodrow Commission in New South Wales handed down its finding on corruption, there was a whole table around PCYCs and its impact, um, which included a recommendation of Mm civilianisation. So, uh, the New South Wales uh, uh, organisation went down a track of civilianising their management structure and moving police out of management roles into service delivery roles. Um, So I got a phone call just completely out of the blue. I applied for the job as the CEO, the Mm -hmm. first civilian CEO, um, and was unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I got a phone call about a month later from the then the the newly appointed chief executive, and Mm -hmm. her name is Deborah Mills. uh, And Deborah is quite a remarkable woman in so far as you know. This is the organisation that ten years before was called Police Boys Club, run by police. Mm -hmm. Deborah is now the first civilian CEO. Who was a woman mm. managing police citizens youth clubs or police community youth mm-hmm. clubs? So a massive so cultural shift. change. Yeah. And, and Deborah, uh, Deborah gave me a phone call. She'd been told I'd done okay at the interview. Right. And she wanted to fly up and have a coffee with me. And uh, at the end of the meeting, I shook her hand um, and I was the appointed the new chief executive. So uh, the deputy chief executive. Right. So moved. Um, the family of our young family mm-hmm. uh, from brisbane down to sydney and spent five years working in uh, the pcyc movement in new south wales mm-hmm. leading the process of civilianization mm-hmm. so getting uh, civilian managers appointed and we're talking about 60 different communities and 60 different pcyc's putting that team of civilian managers in place negotiating our way through mm. the police civilian dynamics at the time mm. um, and then really looking at the way in which the organisation was fundamentally structured and
2: mm. um,
0: and i imagine uh even though there had been a ruling that it was probably better for the clubs to be managed by civilians versus police for police who had had a long-term heart connection to doing that work and getting a lot of probably mm. self-worth from it that i mean there must have been quite a lot of resistance yeah
1: absolutely and there was um, there was both passive and very assertive mm. resistance. So mm-hmm. People saying they won't work with civilian managers, they won't take um, directions from civilian managers. Right. And so I spent a lot of my time um, in a conflict resolution mode, mm-hmm. getting people to again understand mm. it's not about them, that yeah. um, it's about what we're trying to do. And um, perhaps most critically, I, we had some outstanding board members Um uh, Michael Cleary for example uh, Michael sat down in front of a room of police officers and stared them down and said, "What is it you don't understand about this right you know why, why do you believe that you have any right um, other than a historical legacy mm. to dictate what happens into mm-hmm. the future about this organization
0: but they obviously still felt it was important to have police as part of the title yeah. of the business
1: yeah and that's and that's exactly right we were re-engineering the organization so mm-hmm. that the p the police were actually doing what they wanted to be doing and mm-hmm. that's what i kept saying to them you know and, and i wasn't se- i was seen as a mediator in many respects because mm-hmm. i had been part of the pcyc movement i don't i you know i understood the culture mm-hmm. i had a, a fantastic relationship with the police in queensland i was, mm-hmm. was well respected by um, the guys up here so for me um, the opportunity to, to sit down with them and say, look, this is what you want to do. You actually mm. want to be working in direct service delivery in reducing uh, crime in your local communities. That's a, that's your mandate. Mm. Let these guys get on and do all of the stuff around accounts and management yeah. committees and minutes and agendas, sure. which you hate doing and you're not very good at it nine mm-hmm. times out of ten. Mm-hmm. Let them do their job and support you. So we, we ended up crafting a consultation framework and a communications framework which brought civilian managers and police together every six months to learn off each other and mm-hmm. we started very slowly um setting best practice mm. and understanding um i think one of those one of those critical sort of moment light bulb moments was that we just didn't celebrate success Richard. Mm-hmm. and we spent a lot of time in a senior, as a senior management team focusing on what was what wasn't working mm-hmm. we actually had this pot of things that were going remarkably well mm. uh, um,
2: Hmm,
0: That's fascinating. So what eventually took you away from PCYC and to uh, Playgroup Queensland?
1: Yeah, look, I'd been at PCYC for almost 15 years, accumulatively throughout Mm -hmm. the two organisations, and I'd been the bridesmaid to a fantastic CEO, uh, and it was Deborah that actually encouraged me and said, I think it's time you tried to work in your own organisation and and use some of the skills that you've been demonstrating here. So. Um, um, Playgroup came up out of the blue. I got a phone call to say that there was a not for profit in Queensland. Uh, it was uh, nearly insolvent. It had mm-hmm. no money on it, so no money in their accounts, it was no money in its balance sheet. And at that time, I was really ready to rip in and have a go at something. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't know anything anything about Playgroup mm-hmm. whatsoever. And I, even though I had a small son, and Tracy and I, uh, I think. Tom and Will were maybe um, four and maybe six months when mm-hmm. we moved back to Queensland. So for us, it was, a, it was a really, when I started to do my homework into Plague, it was really quite interesting. Again, mm. a very proud history as an organisation. And what are they all about? Well, they, they provide parenting services to parents and children. So they're informal groups. They get people together. They allow parents to exchange information whilst their children socialise. Um, that's a very vanilla sort of conversation about what a playgroup is mm. when you what what got me really interested when you you look down into what they actually did in the community in terms of um, broader social impact they, mm-hmm. they were creating connections between parents they were allowing kids who would become lifelong friends to come together we were working on children's developmental skills um, but it struck me again that uh, the, the organisation was a little bit, and I describe it like this now, sort of white, middle-class, bigosh wearing right. families. Yep. Um, and there was this group in the community who really weren't accessing the playgroup movement. Mm. And that were you know, young parents, for example, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, migrant and newly-arrived families. So... Um, we we wanted to sit down. Um, so when I began, um, it's it's no joke. I paid the I began three weeks before Christmas, and paid the Christmas wages on um, on my own Visa card to right. my staff, because uh, they had literally they exhausted an overdraft. Wow! Um, so starting from a complete clean sheet, mm. uh, new board, you know, went about uh, working with a very good chairperson at the time, uh, who was a new chairperson recruiting. A skills-based board who were really passionate mm-hmm. about uh, early years development for children and family development, and then nine years later, um, incredibly healthy balance sheet. We owned our own building. Mm-hmm. We went from having eight staff to 160 staff.
0: So, what were some of the pivotal uh, strategies you implemented to enact such a, a you know, amazing turnaround?
1: I think um, it's a membership organisation yeah. and I, I think they had lost touch in the early years with what members were actually wanting. So, you know, was was the product relevant mm-hmm. in, in, a, in the sort of contemporary communities in which we were living in? Um, were the membership offerings the right value propositions? Were we just relying on a brochure from 10 years prior that mm-hmm. said you got access to a toy library and insurance? Right. Yeah, well, people didn't value that. Sure. Like they valued, for example, information and advice from a helpline on, um, on child development. Right. And connecting your playgroup to people mm-hmm. all over Australia and mm. providing information back to them or recruiting mm. new members to your playgroup. So we, we fundamentally restructured the way in which uh, Playgroup Queensland worked with community playgroups and then we started having conversations with the federal government. And this is about the time that um, John Howard arrived on the scene. So there was some um, broad political change. Now, these are the buoyant years in terms of Australia's economy that, mm-hmm. you know, we, we weren't in deficit. There was new money about. Um, Larry Anthony uh, was, was uh, uh, made the first ever uh, minister for children in the federal government, okay. uh, a junior minister portfolio. We started to talk to Larry about wanting to engage using the playgroup model uh, in uh, isolated communities and also in communities that were hard to reach Mm -hmm. and ended up creating what what is technically called the Family Support Early Intervention Division. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at playgroups when I started and look at when uh, I finished almost 10 years later, the balance was 100% community Mm -hmm. playgroups, it's now roughly Mm 50-50. So these specialised playgroups with paid facilitators delivering outcomes for children experiencing child abuse Mm -hmm. and a whole range of other issues Mm. became a bit of a financial saviour for the organisation but certainly also gave us a reputation as being an organisation that was adaptable Mm -hmm. and was looking towards uh, an impact rather than just going through the motions of delivering services. Mm-hmm.
0: And what about, you know, you personally, uh, stepping from Deputy CEO into your first CEO role yeah. in a new organisation for you, and at, you know, a relatively young age. Yeah. What, yeah. what were some of the um, uh, things that you noticed in terms of your own capability, the gaps um, from a skills yeah. point of view, and, and how did you go about uh, proactively improving your capability?
1: Well, it was interesting because I think I'd always been shielded by my chief executives into some of the more nuanced board dynamics about how to, you know, dealing with the board, understanding the way in which they were operating. Uh, and here I was as, as the officer of the company reporting to this board. So I certainly think that was that was an area where I had to um, mature relatively mm-hmm. quickly. Um, and I got a real sense about um, understanding and respecting the difference between a board and how I, as a CEO, could uh, influence and and advise in terms of strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and there was some, you know, there was certainly in the first couple of years, I, I didn't make the mistake of thinking I was also the board, but mm. but but had to move around that um, that fine line mm. between you know, being being honest with the board in terms of look. I don't think that's a strategy that we can pursue at this time, and here's the reasons, Mm. to then respecting the fact that boards particularly, and we had a very, very good skills-based dynamic Mm -hmm. board with several senior individuals from corporates around Queensland sitting on that board who would say to me, Mark, this is a board decision. Mm -hmm. Um, So it took me some time to sort of reorientate. Um, I guess the other big change was it was moving out of an operational paradigm in my own head into a strategic realm um, so constantly you know, letting go, if you like, mm-hmm. and letting um, a good group of general managers get on with running the business mm-hmm. um, and doing the day-to-day stuff, and, and my job was to be able to create the environment and the opportunities that enable them to do mm-hmm. that. So,
0: okay. I mean, earlier in your career, you'd uh, gone and done a degree in business to give you some rounding out in terms of your yeah. formal capability. At any point, did you think? uh it would be uh worthy to go and do an mba or were you attracted Mm. to doing more formal study like that
1: um uh, throughout my entire career i've sort of kept up and done professional development opportunities Mm -hmm. but um, i hadn't really got to the point where i would wanted to go back and do my mba and uh, you know i think when i reflect on that uh it 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 was more so because um, the organizations i've worked in i've always come in as a reformist chief executive Mm -hmm. And it's all—it's almost all, all consuming. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I soon learnt, and, and it's one of—it's—it's it's in my next uh, five-year career goals to go back and complete um, uh, my MBA. Right. Uh, and have a look at doing that. Uh, you know, the AICD courses and AIM courses and those types of things have been invaluable to me. But I think, in terms of my own postgraduate qualifications, it's something mm. um, because nothing stays the same. You know. It, mm. As i sort of said, you know, we're now working on a very large digital strategy for the Mm organisation that five years ago, the the word disruption didn't mean what it means in terms of digital disruption. And now we're starting to understand. That's been one of the things that I've been really keen to do is try to get ahead of the next issue. Mm -hmm.
0: It's very interesting that you, you know, you raise that point. I mean, uh, uh, I talk about disruption, obviously LinkedIn having a tremendous disruption effect on the recruitment industry just like uber and uh you know uh, accommodation services and so on and disruption is just a norm now isn't it i mean every industry is facing disruptors and you have to become extremely flexible and adaptable. One of the things that you said earlier, which I think is interesting, I think you said you're a reformist CEO, mm. which to me means you're a change agent. Mm. And yet you've sat in roles for a long time. You know, Typically, the person who likes to do turnarounds comes in, enacts you know, the, the low hanging fruit type strategies, and then gets bored and wants to shoot off and do the next thing. But um, 15 years or so with PCYC, Ten years um, uh, uh, with playgroups. Play so, how did you keep the role uh, intellectually stimulating to enable you to, you know, give that length of service? Yeah,
1: it, uh, yeah it, it's a good question. I think for me, um, you'd never walk into a job expecting uh, knowing what that that year will hold. Sure. Um, the the external influences in the not for profit sector. So whether it was Know, changes to government policy and funding requirements um, always had something new mm. that meant that organizations were always reinventing themselves so mm-hmm. i guess when i when i sort of talk about being a change agent it's not it's not the wham bam thank you ma'am come in yeah you know cut workforce to improve profit mm-hmm. model um, you're not the toe cutter well no and, and quite frankly I, I you know i'm friends with a couple of colleagues who do that for a living sure um in the corporate world but i don't think that actually creates sustainability mm-hmm. for an organization mm-hmm. and it certainly doesn't empower people to want to go back out to work and achieve um, what you have said or you and the board have said in terms of strategies so, mm-hmm. you know, i'm i'm really proud of the fact Plague playgroup queensland that we you know we, we were awarded uh, the australian work-life balance award for the not-for-profit sector mm-hmm. and not so much the award, but the fact that we were living what we were doing. Mm-hmm. You know, we were a family-centric centred organisation with a family-centric workforce actually doing what we said we would do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, were, we were Australia's healthiest workplace, or Queensland's healthiest workplace. Mm-hmm. So um, long before Google had beanbags and sure. the notion of sort of um, freckles on your front counter, <laughs> we actually <laughs> sat down and went, well, what does this mean? Right. What, what do we want? And I, you know, unashamedly, I think the reason that I stayed in that job was because the people um, were so committed to the role. But there came a day, and right. I, I still remember it. I sat there and went, "Okay, you know, I'm about to do our second website or our third website, and I'm on a new database. Yeah, it's time to go. Right? Well, there's just you can only do so many new websites and databases.
0: So that was the catalyst to make you think time for a change.
1: Yeah, and I look, I. Uh, Playgroup was at, <coughs> excuse me. Playgroup was at the point where everything um, I would wanted to achieve was right. Mm-hmm.
0: So. Okay. And so, how did the uh, the ASMO opportunity come up on your radar? Um,
1: there was. I got a phone call again. I got a phone call to say that they were looking for someone who could steady the ship, mm-hmm. but also who had experience in bringing together disparate groups into a conversation about mm-hmm. service delivery and efficiency
0: so right from the get-go they were considering this uh yeah. national amalgamation well it was
1: certainly that it was the agenda of um the queensland chairman charles right. mitchell so yes. he appointed me into that role mm-hmm. and from day one said look you need to you need to create the environment and show the leadership necessary that potentially you will do yourself out of a job as the queensland ceo mm-hmm. one day mm-hmm. and become a state manager and." Mm. It, it's titles. Quite quite frankly, it's just a title. Sure. Um, I've worked as a you know, CEO and a state manager, and I can tell you, um, the state manager's role became a lot easier because I didn't have to work at a board and uh, an sure. interface. Yeah. Um, I had greater accountability mm-hmm. as a state member than I did as a small not-for-profit CEO. Mm-hmm. So um, for me, that was made abundantly clear that we had to uh, make Queensland Foundation best practice We had to make it one that other states would stand up and take notice of and that i needed to show the leadership to my colleagues right across the country that uh, um, that the single entity was um, not only something that wasn't to be feared but was more so um, the opportunity for better ways of working and more engagement for people with asthma.
0: Mm -hmm. It's interesting, Um, uh, you see quite uh, often in this space that one particular state uh, feels a requirement to uh, put themselves up as best practice in order to get other Mm -hmm. states to start to engage with this idea of amalgamation being the right mm. move forward what were some of the best practice initiatives that you are undertook and able to do that so we
1: for a long time the organization had been reliant upon government grants mm-hmm. we wanted to diversify our revenue stream mm-hmm. um, so we looked at uh, improving our op shops and our art unions programs both of which contributed new money to the organization um, we wanted to reconnect with our donors and uh, also have a chat to um, we had very few corporate partners and we wanted to reconnect to the corporate community
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, sort of as a coverall comment asthma wasn't seen as sexy you know in the late Mm. 70s and 80s um, more people were dying of asthma in Australia than road deaths Mm -hmm. so um, but as medical advances have come on what we've seen now is that asthma has lost ground if you will from some of the more um, uh, high profile charities whether it's Diabetes or mm-hmm. the cancer suite of charities. Um, yeah, and I think um, because of its, its it had lost some of its provenance in terms of the public's mind, mm-hmm. that had seen uh, impacts in terms of the way in which the organisation had um, engaged with the corporate community and engaged with government. So a lot of a lot of our early years were about creating. Um, an improved understanding about where asthma was in, in contemporary society.
0: Um, mm-hmm. When you're going out and you're having to pitch for corporate engagement, um, and you're in a sense competing with all of these other disability medical related not for profits, mm-hmm. how what, what are the things that you have to do to, you know, become the not for profit of choice? Yeah. Um, what? What? How do you How do you build a strategy around that?
1: Uh, look, it's yeah. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging environment at the moment because I think uh, the plethora of charities, particularly in the medical and health space, um, and if you think about the McGrath Foundation, it wasn't here mm-hmm. 10 years ago, it's now number one. Wow. You know, okay. So uh, for us, when, when we talk to corporates, um, we don't just walk in and put a cap-in-hand approach anymore. That's mm-hmm. you know, the, the days of corporates just handing over a cheque. We spend a lot of time researching uh, the company, what Mm -hmm. their values are, researching who we're talking to and what the board and the chief executive look like. Mm -hmm. Um, With 2.4 million Australians with asthma, I can guarantee you someone on that board will have an experience either themselves or a child or a parent with asthma. So for us, um, looking for that alignment between what they do and what we do was really important. And then having a conversation. about where they thought that alignment could possibly go. Mm-hmm. So we signed um, completely, out of the, um, completely out of the blue, Hudson's Coffee uh, oh, yeah. is now a major, one of our principal partners, uh, right. funding significant astral research. And everyone goes, what? How did Hudson's Coffee? Mm. Um, if you do your research, and I'm not giving away anything new, so if you do your research, Hudson's Coffee um, is the largest provider of coffee shops in private uh, hospitals in this country, right, so they have a direct clientele which are mm-hmm. medical professionals,, sure. and they wanted to demonstrate to their constituency mm-hmm. that they were backing a cause. Um, what made us interesting to them is that they weren't going to join <coughs> a chart which had fifty charities all dotted. They wanted brand presence and they right. wanted the opportunity. To be prominent as a, as a partner, yeah. they didn't want to see their logo fifth from the bottom sure. on a plat. You know, there's a platinum at the top, and they yeah. were down here. Right. No one on that board had asthma, but mm. there was a there was an opportunity and a synergy between what we wanted to do and what they wanted to do. Mm,
0: that's fascinating. And so, um, was that a situation where you identified them as a target, and and you approached presenting, uh, you know, uh, essentially a pitch, you know. Um, Or was it more that they approached you
1: no we approached them right Um, we could see they didn't have any charity partners yeah Um, we could see that there was a new marketing manager had just commenced in the role right Uh, and um, we we knew that potentially a new marketing manager would Mm -hmm. mean a new opportunity to look at strategy Mm. Um, so we uh, using some of our connections with our board we set up a Third-party coffee Mm -hmm. with their chief executive and their marketing manager, Mm -hmm. and began the conversation. Right, Um, and um,
0: uh, it is such a competitive space. I know from even from a recruitment point of view, talking around the uh, not-for-profits, one of their biggest challenges is finding people to join them in this funds, uh, you know, raising type roles. mm -hmm. Uh, Finding good people to do that is incredibly hard, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think um, you know, so many of our partners are looking at ways in which they can engage their staff in fundraising, so mm-hmm. you know, third-party giving. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to create, right now we've got a challenge with, uh, with a corporate partner where their staff have been challenged to raise $100,000 right. um, over the next 12 months. And whatever they raise, the company will match.
0: Okay. That's great. And so, um, bringing it more back to yourself now, so, uh, you're in the CEO role, um, for asthma foundation, Queensland, then you step up into the national role. Uh, and now you're running this process to, uh, bring everybody together. When you think back on your career and, and you think about, you know, some of the, uh, building blocks to be mm. enabling you to take that kind of a stand. What are some of the, um, The personal characteristics you've had to develop uh, to enable you to be such a proactive leader—have you? um, What What are your philosophies around leadership?
1: Um, Certainly, there's a um, again. My dad is very good at you're born with two ears and one mouth, Mark. you use the one you got more of. Yeah. Look, we spend a lot of time listening and understanding um, what people are saying to us, Uh, and and being inclusive and transparent are very easy to say, mm-hmm. but it's then actually when you get feedback that you don't like, do you put it in the bottom drawer or do you actually leave it on the table from people and say, well, let's have a conversation about this. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so over my career, I've become remarkably more assertive in doing that. You know, mm-hmm. oh, they're, you know, they're just whinging. It's just another state of having a whinge, ignore it. Right. Versus, no, we're not going to ignore that. We're going to bring people in and we'll have a chat about it. Mm-hmm. And maybe we're wrong, but maybe they just haven't heard our message. So um, being clear about how we're communicating is something that over 20 years, um, it's it's a skill that mm-hmm. we've had to develop, that I've had to develop as a mm-hmm. CEO.
0: And one of the things about that is understanding that if a person hasn't understood you, that's your responsibility, not theirs. That's right.
1: Yeah. No. And I, you know, I became incredibly frustrated once with a a state president going, what are you not getting about this? <laughs> um, and it was incredibly clear to me, he was getting it. Yeah. Um, he was getting what I was saying, and I wasn't saying the right thing. Sure. In the, we were both on the same page. So rather than let that fester over time, uh, we sat down and gone, right, what do we actually mean and how does this look? Okay, and, and so communication has
0: obviously been you know, a, a cornerstone to your leadership development. What are some of the other
1: skills? I mean, for me, uh, certainly people leadership uh, and building uh, a very strong senior management team and an entire workforce has been something I've spent a lot of my time in creating environments where people are valued. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in terms of being valued, that their their value is not um, sort of nailed to the wall in terms of their job, but their value is celebrated across the entire organisation. So Mm -hmm. whether you're the receivable clerk or you're the, um, the senior uh, asthma educator in a, in, a, in a community, everyone has a value. So we spent a, I've spent a lot of time investing in the people that work uh, for me and around me mm-hmm. to be able to get that sense. Um, I've also, uh, it, I think what defines that leadership is also acknowledging that people will come and go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Deborah Mills, the CEO I referred to before, had she said to me, "My job on day one is to make you is to make you better for the next organisation you work with," and mm-hmm. that's sort of resonated in the mm. back of my mind. And that was 25 years ago that she said that, but it's resonated all the way through my career that I want people to be really good mm-hmm. and shine in their jobs, but mm-hmm. be even better. So that you know, when I'm doing a referee, I'm not actually giving a referee that is. Uh, um, that's a I'm really
0: interesting. In. I've never heard that before. And yeah. when you think about it, uh. One, I think it'd be very rare for somebody to espouse that, I want to make you better for your next employer, and and actually mean it. Yeah. But for the person hearing that, that must be a tremendously wonderful thing to hear from your boss. Uh, you know, that they are going to be invested in your success and they also want to encourage you to go on and, and flourish elsewhere.
1: That, when she said that to you, you must have felt very um, it, empowering. It actually gives you the confidence and, and, and you know, it inspires a loyalty as well. Yeah, and if, if you're gonna be sending me to all of these courses and making me do these professional development opportunities, um, then I want the opportunity to both repay you in terms of hard work in the current position um, but I, 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 I frequently meet with CEOs that I've worked with over many years, some of whom are now, you know, chairmen of large not-for-profits in their own right, and we, we've had conversations about the same thing, mm. um, that uh, they have been uh, empowering their teams through that very philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, if, look, I have, I have, I've had a 360 degree performance appraisal since mm-hmm. 1995. Right. Um, when Deborah first started introducing it, so you need a tough skin, you need to be resilient because people take it as a free shot. Sometimes, oh for sure, you know, don't put my name on it. Yeah, don't right. put um, my name on it. When you read those, you go, oh wow. Um, so rather than reading them, trying to identify who wrote it, um, I said, okay, why, why are they writing that? And yeah. then So over the years, that work. Mm. I mean, I'm not God. I'm not naive. I'm not universally loved by my teams. Sure. Um, but I think I'm respected and that's the difference. Oh, that's
0: excellent. I remember very early in my career, I went to work for a a very big Australian company and I went away for the first sort of leadership retreat and uh, somebody said to me, if the state manager has a few drinks and asks people, what do you actually think of me? Don't answer because the people who did that last time are not here anymore. (laughs) So, you know, the the cultural mythology, uh, you know, uh, ran uh, very powerfully in that business. Yeah. One of the things um, uh, I am getting more and more now is uh, people who are in corporate careers, who have a desire to move into the not-for-profit sector, particularly yeah. at C-suite CEO level. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, which I completely agree with, that you know a lot of the attributes of leading a business being financially accountable, strategy, um, you know, operational delivery, et cetera, are very, very similar. But what, what would you say, if you were advising somebody who is sitting in corporate, wanting to move into not-for-profit, what are the, the things that you'd get them to yeah. think really seriously about before making that choice?
1: Well, I, I had coffee with someone a fortnight ago who asked me that question. Right. I think that, I mean, the opportunity, I've said them, don't dumb it down don't mm-hmm. believe that because you're coming from uh, a commercial setting or a government setting into the not for profit sector that's somehow inferior. Right. because um, that's the that's the mistake I've seen uh, a number of people make that you know it's it's a bit it's a bit easier because it's a charity. Yeah, okay. Um, the second thing is that stakeholder engagement is nuanced in the not for profit sector more than it is in the commercial sector. So you're You know, you're sitting there with your shareholders and you might have a couple of institutional shareholders. You're dealing predominantly Mm -hmm. with a small group who are hard negotiators. Mm -hmm. In my organisation, as I said before, I deal with 120 board members, each Mm. of whom are very passionate about it and are Mm -hmm. not afraid to tell you. Mm. Um, Many of whom are volunteers. Absolutely. Um, There are very few paid directors in the not-for-profit space. So many of those volunteers will have um, inverted commas a moral authority that mm-hmm. they believe is right mm-hmm. and how you respond to that at that first point of challenge will define you for the rest of the rest of your time in that organization mm-hmm. and i you know, if you look at those little moments in time where you um, jump up and down because someone's made a stupid eye, a stupid recommendation at a board meeting how you respond to that at the time um, you can either ignore it or you can challenge it or you can work your way with the person to find the middle ground. Mm-hmm. Um, that sensitivity is something that needs to be very well managed. Mm-hmm. Um, the philosophies are the same, as I said. I, you know, we're a values-based organisation, um, so being able to live those values. So if you're working in a, a disability sector and you've got inclusiveness in your in your value, but you don't have uh, opportunities to engage with people with disabilities, and you're mm-hmm. not inclusive in including them and their, their families in your conversations. Mm-hmm. Then I don't think mm-hmm. you've made the transition as well as what you should mm-hmm. have. Mm-hmm. Um, all the other issues are the same: cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. Sure. It's the one thing that drives the not-for-profit sector. Um, and understanding that our our timing, our strategic horizon timing, is often three years because mm-hmm. of ill-conceived grants by government, Mm. rather than being able to set a longer-term agenda. I've Mm. always said to people, I set five-year timeframes, but plan for the disaster in case you lose funding. Mm -hmm. and uh, Having those contingencies in place and building a diversity of revenue are are bloody easier to say, Richard, Mm. and more difficult to Mm. do. Um, But that seems to be some of the recipes Mm. for success.
0: Okay. Thinking about your own uh, future now, I mean, you've had sort of 15, 16 years in a CEO role. Uh, If you look out towards the sort of five to 10 year horizon for your career, you've mentioned, you know, potential desire to go back and do some more formal Hmm. study. But professionally, you know, where would you like to see your career move to uh, over that sort of period of time?
1: I think, look, as I've matured into roles, I've, I've really become quite interested in a couple of concepts. One is um, social design strategies. Mm-hmm. So um, so the areas of local government really interest me. I'm not interested in state or federal government. but right. Local government where you can enact, you can design and develop and consult on a particular strategy and put it in place. Mm-hmm. Um, so community development roles in local government um, are sort of a, a career ambition for me um, mm-hmm. at, a, at a senior level. And then there's this sort of other area that um, has been emerging for ten years in Australia around philanthropy and mm-hmm. social enterprise and social impact. And you know the 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 advent of social impact bonds in recent years, um, where you know the investors are putting money into particular projects. So, you know I'd I'd love to be able to work in that philanthropic space where you're taking uh, grants. And funding from corporates or, or individuals mm-hmm. and then applying that over the longer term in, in some form of investment and I've I really enjoyed mm-hmm. in many respects doing that with the National Asset Research Trust Fund uh, because we can attract the investment and then look at the way in which we're using that funding to achieve a much broader community mm-hmm. outcome. So the notion of social impact has been um, widely banded around by the sector and I, I, I'm not sure that we actually know what it means yet because of um, disruptive technologies mm. and the way in which we're engaging. Mm. Um, if you'd have asked me 12 months ago, would I be talking to investors in the United States about um, IT for asthma? Mm-hmm. I would have laughed at you. But here we are. You know, I, I leave next week to go and talk to a philanthropist who is interested in investing in IT um, solutions for people with asthma. Right. Um, so that yeah. that work is really interesting, and and they're attracted to
0: doing that in an Australian context rather than in a US context for what reason?
1: Um, smaller populations and direct access to market. Okay. Uh, and we're more nimble. Right. So the U- the US has uh, I think 18 asthma charities mm-hmm. um, all of which are quite um, quite uh, cannibalistic of sure. each other's work. Yeah. So the, the fact that they can work directly with us. Yeah. Uh, but I think the other issue is that we have, we now have a track record mm-hmm. um, and that track record is um, was highlighted at in an international conference mm-hmm. six months ago, where, where where this seed got planted. Mm-hmm. So, um, never, I'm never surprised anymore about where opportunities sure. appear from. You know, you, we're standing there talking to someone in a conference in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a chat to someone in, <coughs> in the US, and they say, there's this, "There's this team in Australia that are looking at this new technology. How about right. how investing in it?"
0: Yeah, well, so um, we've done a lot of work with a. Uh, uh, Queensland medical research Ooh. investment uh, here in Brisbane and certainly uh, you know the investments that are being made into new technologies uh, across a whole plethora of different medical sort of uh, orientations is fascinating mm-hmm. so I think uh, you know Queensland and Australia
1: is building quite a reputation in that space. Yeah. QMIR sets a very high benchmark mm. in this space I mean, if, if we could emulate some of their work on oh, mm. that would be fantastic. Great.
0: And look, um, just to close out the conversation, because I know you've got a, a lot of things to get on with today. We've talked a lot about work. You know, what, what, what do you like to do to enjoy your time? Uh, you've obviously got family, but uh, what are some yeah. of your hobbies when you're not working so hard?
1: Um, so I, I, I'm a, I'm a just, if you could see me, you wouldn't believe it, but I'm a mad football uh, player. So right. I have, um, we are a football family, all three boys in our family. Which league? Uh, well, I'm an EPL and a Tottenham supporter, so um, if you're following it at the moment, you will hope Leicester gets knocked off in right. a one or two games, so Tottenham can leapfrog them. Okay, so, what we're we talking about soccer here? We're talking about <laughs> sorry, yeah, no, uh, for the, yeah, for the uninitiated, yeah, football is soccer. Yeah. So, um, but no, I, I enjoy, uh, I, you know, I play socially in a, okay. in, a in an over 45s team. Um, when I say play, I stand at left back, and if yeah. the ball runs past me, I will let it go. Um, but both my kids are playing football at a, an elite level, okay. so I love it. Um, you know, I spend most of my Saturdays at a school barbecue during football season. Uh, right. You know, flipping burgers whilst talking to other mums and dads about right. football. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I'm a keen gardener. I really, um, I've sort of got into tropical gardening purely by accident because okay. you needed something that you could come back to and see it as a work in progress. Right. So. I've been doing that uh, since we moved to our house about 10 years ago and slowly So, so working if we visited
0: it. you, you've got quite a lush tropical garden, have you?
1: Yeah, there's not much grass, mate. Right. So we've got a small patch of grass around a pool and yeah. that's about it. So,
0: yeah. Okay, oh, yeah. that's great. Well, look, um, I really appreciate you taking the time today and uh, coughing notwithstanding, yeah, it is the season for that. Uh, thanks again and have a fantastic afternoon.
1: Thanks, Richard. Thanks okay. for the opportunity. <music>
0: Thanks again for joining us today on the Arate podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mark Brook. I look forward to welcoming you to future episodes of the Arate podcast. And in the meantime, have a fantastic day.